0: This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. I'm delighted to have as our guest today Dan Cameron, Chief Curator and Interim Director and CEO of the Orange County Museum of Art. Our conversation today is about the exhibition California Landscape into Abstraction, works from the Orange County Museum of Art, which continues through March 9th. Dan Cameron is the Chief Curator and Interim Director and CEO of the Orange County Museum of Art. He began the position of Chief Curator at this museum in January 2012. He was previously the Founder and Artistic Director of Prospect New Orleans. If he was previously the... Senior curator at the New Museum in New York, mm-hmm. doing such groundbreaking exhibitions as the work of David Wanarovich, um exhibitions on Faith Ringel, Carol Dunham, and group exhibitions such as East Village, USA. Why don't we start just for a second, just a little background? Tell us a little bit about uh, the Prospect New Orleans uh, project and how that, how that happened, how that came about. Sure. What you did there?
1: Oh, I'd love to, love to talk about New Orleans. <laughs> right. Uh, my relationship with the city began in 1987 when I kind of when I was there for art reasons, but went to the jazz festival on one of the days that happened to be open and it was a very kind of cathartic experience for me. And I made a vow to get to know New Orleans. It was my first time ever visiting the city, and so I've been, among other things going to every year to the Jazz Festival, and this year will be my 27th consecutive Jazz Fest in New Orleans. There's a lot of us in the United States who just uh, center our calendar on Jazz Fest as a kind of a rite of spring, and you have to do it every year. And so I, I got to know the city that way and through early art contacts, and began getting more and more connected to the city, to the point where when Hurricane Katrina caused the floods in in 2005. I was really one of the very few people in the art world who actually knew many visual artists in New Orleans. Most people in New York didn't know anyone because New Orleans is not in the center of the American art world. It's not considered one of the capitals of, of visual art. And it's also a city in which, you know, certainly music... And also, cuisine kind of function as the main cultural um, media for for people to work in. So the, the most prominent people, most people, if they know anyone well known in New Orleans, it's usually either a musician or a chef, yes.
0: because
1: that's where the that's where the cultural identity comes from. But
0: it's extraordinary what you did there. Can you tell us what you did?
1: Yes, what I did was I I started in. January 2006, having a conversation with the artists there about how to get involved with the cultural rebuilding of the city. And we quickly arrived at a plan to do a, a big international biennial, because I had always been aware of the fact that that doesn't exist in the United States. We don't have a, a big international biennial, not a national biennial. There's the Whitney Biennial of American Art, yes, but nothing on a scale of Venice or Sao Paulo. So I thought... What better, what more American idea than to create our our national, international biennial in a city that is in desperate straits and for which the primary impulse is humanitarian? So that was the founding idea. I started a company, a not-for-profit organization on my own in in January 2007 called U.S. Biennial Incorporated, and the only thing U.S. Biennial does is it raises money and produces prospect. Mm. So I left... Does that still exist,
0: that company? Pardon? Does that still exist?
1: Yes, yes. I left the company. I kind of handed it over to the board when I took this job Mm. because I thought I could not be a chief curator at a museum and also a fundraiser for another not-for-profit organization in the other side of the country simultaneously. That that didn't work right. And... um, I wanted to put it in the hands of the people who had worked on it with me. Um, I had a, I ha- I was the one who chose the artistic directors to succeed me, and I had a big role in picking the current executive director as well, who's doing a fantastic job. But it was clear to me that it was a temporary thing. Yes. I didn't know how long it would last. I figured five years at the low end, maybe ten years at the high end. But after Prospect 2, in fact, in the run-up to Prospect 2, which happened at the end of 2011, um, I realized that I was done, that, that, that it made no more sense for me to stick around after the second iteration, that I should flip it as fast as I could and make a clean break. So that's what I did.
0: Yes. And so now you, you've been in, in Orange County for two years. I understand that they haven't. you're now the, the director as well. I'm the so interim director. What's happening with that? What's going on? Well,
1: there's a search going on, and the search uh, company, the search firm, is now in, it's still recruiting. They're still, but what they've got now is um, a very detailed job description, and they've got a lot of candidates. They've, already fielded, they've been here, talking to the search committee from the board, thrown out some (laughs) candidates, gone back, looking at at more candidates, and in March, we will be interviewing, the museum will be interviewing candidates here, and the idea is hopefully maybe to name someone within a month or so of that, and they'll probably start another few months later. So I I think I'll be interim director for, at most, another five or six months. Mm.
0: I know you've done another podcast about your other exhibit, the Tri, uh, the Biennial, the California Biennial, uh,
1: the California Pacific Triennial. Yeah. <laughs> <The California laughs> Triennial. Okay. I
0: know. Thank, Mister. Uh, so we, I didn't want to talk about that so much because you've already discussed that at length. Um, but you have done that. You've done uh, the, that was my first big
1: project, mm-hmm.
0: and now. You decide to do this show. Tell us how this show came about why you chose this subject. How did you tell us the backstory of this this particular exhibition well it
1: was it was really a cultural revelation for me when I got here and understood that all of the l a artists that I admired uh, were surfers mm. uh, I hadn 't understood like Ken prices you know, how surfing functioned in, his, in the development of his work, or Terrell, or Irwin, or any of these people, that, that, that there was this very deep connection to the landscape. Mm. And I was researching John McLaughlin at that time, the painter, who lived in Dana Point. And I guess through his example, I became more and more aware that it wasn't just a lifestyle question, for a lot of the artists who I admired, but it was also uh, that nature was considered a source of material, of of information. It was a source for their work. And that was, again, as someone coming from New York, that was very striking to me. Yes. Because nature has not figured into any any description Mm -hmm. or justification for the avant-garde since the 50s. That was probably the last Mm -hmm. time when you heard you know, a major New York artist talking about their relationship to nature as being a, a part of their work. And I thought, here, it's ubiquitous. <laughs> you, you find it across the board. And so I thought, well, then, what's the relationship between landscape and abstraction? Like, how how did abstraction come to be, first of all, here? Right. And then how has it maintained this kind of interlocking relationship to landscape? all along. So once I started looking at it that way, I then thought, well, let's look at it from the other side and see who were the landscape artists who were, in retrospect, pushing their work more and more towards abstraction. Mm. And then I just said, okay, well, I'm going to have to define the idea of abstraction as broadly as possible. Right, exactly. I was going to
0: say, right. Both landscape and abstraction.
1: Yeah, in abstraction also needed to be defined right. <laughs> as broadly as possible. Yeah, um, So that there are conceptual, you know, conceptual art plays an important role in this whole process. But, you know, the end result of conceptual art is not to make things more abstract, no. um, despite what Tom Wolfe thinks. Um, I think that the end, end result of conceptual art is to bring narrative back and, you know, talk, you know, sort of provide a context for you? For
0: it, it, it was different the way, for example, French artists, uh, you know, it changed, went into abstraction. They had a certain, you know, obviously the beginnings of impression. because you have some work that's from early, beginning of 20th century mm-hmm. in this show.
1: And a couple of 19th century pieces too. I think,
0: right. Um, they had their own um, approach, or even back east or whatever. What do you think was different about the way the California artists approached it rather than e- early on, rather than the, the way the uh, East Coast or European artists... Well, it depends if you make a big distinction between
1: Bay Area and Southern California. Yes. Uh, because, you know, the Bay Area was developed with the gold rush.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the city of San Francisco... Really came into, I mean, by the 1890s, San Francisco was a completely built up cosmopolitan metropolis. I mean, as much as existed in the United States, it was a place that was on the international shipping ma- map. There were lots and lots of millionaires. There, were, there was a strong, there was a big population. Um, because the gold, gold rush had created this influx. That caused you know San Francisco to reach its peak population before the before the twentieth century even started. Well, at that point, Los Angeles barely existed. It was it was a bunch of tents, you know, pitched on a land. And so the role, what I learned in my research was that the role of the artist in creating an image of Southern California that would then be used to promote Southern California as a destination was key. It was central. The, the artists were being hired by the railroad companies right. to come out on these all-expenses-paid junkets, right. <clears throat> take your watercolors, bring your Even camera... Even photographers, by the way. Bring your yeah. camera No, It was, yeah, it was cotton Watkins and. Harvest. Yeah. Right. But, but I, I hadn't thought of that, though, right. That, right. That, it, that it actually needed promotion. It, it, because it was pretty barren, it was pretty arid, and so this it wasn't a it wasn't an obvious choice to create um, a major city or a major uh, <clears throat> hub of Western civilization here because there wasn't water. You know, there, there were all these things that were lacking. So the Actually, artists were central in that
0: process. You know, I wanted to read. Um, I brought this book. I wanted to just read this one paragraph. Out of this book, uh, California and Island in the Land. You know this book? Mm-hmm. No. Um, he wrote for the L.A. Times in the thirties, and he was like the first one before Raynor Bannum and all those other people. Mm-hmm. He became the editor of the Nation. His name is Carrie McWilliams. And I just wanted to read you this one paragraph about landscape in California. This was written in the in the forties. Um, like the entire region, Los Angeles. Its heart and center has developed in spite of the location rather than because of it. Southern California is man-made, a gigantic improvisation. Virtually everything in the region has been imported. Plants, flowers, shrubs, trees, people, water, electrical energy, um, and to some extent even the soils. While potentially a rich and fertile region, the land required a highly developed technology to unlock its resources and to tap its amazing fertility. Given water and proper scientific cultivation, the land will raise more things faster and in greater quantities than any other section of America. It is difficult for persons not familiar with the region to believe that Los Angeles County is the richest agricultural county in America, a distinction that is long enjoyed. It is versatile and hospitable land. Most of the herbs, trees, shrubs, plants, flowers to be found in the region are immigrants. Trees that most visitors believe are indigenous, such as the eucalyptus, the acacia, And the pepper tree are nonetheless importations. The first two from Australia, the latter from South America. Forage plants and grasses as well as vertebrates as the rats, the housema, the English sparrow, and the pheasant are likewise importations. Even the weeds of the the region are not native. So we're living in a manufactured landscape. Right. And so
1: I think that the artist's role in this process has been a very um, complicated one. Because at the beginning of the 20th century, it's the artists who are uh, developing the sort of iconography or symbology that would be used to promote Southern California as a place to go. You know, don't think about the aridness. Think about this, you know, think about the beautiful trees. landscape. Or, you know, yeah. think about the Grand Canyon or think about, right. yes, orange trees or palm trees. Or, and, and so the kind of editing and, and framing of Southern California as a, as a place to go. You know, if it wasn't for the artists going to Laguna Beach a right. hundred years ago, that you know, art as an industry in Southern California wouldn't exist. Yeah, I mean, we we we'd still had Disney, but we wouldn't have had this other school, this kind of more bohemian, you know, idea of of basically forging your way into a semi wilderness area, and then making art about that experience.
0: So how, let's talk about that a little bit. The, the idea of Laguna Beach and uh, and also this museum, the fact that you're in Orange County, and, and the, you know, what are the contribution of Orange County to this history of art that people, maybe people aren't as are so aware of.
1: I don't think people are aware of it at all. I think that people, when you talk about um, say the history of, of the Laguna Beach art scene, they tend to have a very narrow idea about what that was and, and how it happened <coughs> and, and what it meant. And I don't think there's an understanding that Laguna Art Museum is one of the oldest cultural institutions in this part of the world, and that it's the commerce, in fact the very identity, of Laguna Beach. Why
0: did that happen in Laguna Beach, do you
1: think? Well, because certain artists picked it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Certain artists decide that it was really, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the artist, he's actually in the catalog, Norman St. Clair. who is from San Francisco, and he was a successful artist. He went exploring and found Laguna Beach where there were some encampments. And he was, I think, the first person that I know of to say, this is the most beautiful landscape I have ever seen in my life. These cliffs are absolutely breathtaking. This canyon is out of this world. I'm never leaving. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to devote my life to representing this landscape. And... That caught on. You know, other people heard. You know, he sent letters. He was a bit of a promoter himself. Right. And, you know, within a very short time, there were a couple dozen, and then there were a couple hundred. <laughs> and suddenly you found this, it was like the town of right. the West Coast, where people came to Laguna Beach for many, many years for prim- predominantly artistic reasons which is why we have the Pageant of the Masters today. Right. That's why we have the Festival of the Arts. These are all the offspring of that original moment of discovery. you know. And I think it was one of the few places up and down the coast where you could just sort of, at that point, see the landscape as it was, completely undeveloped and without habitation, mm. and say, this is transcendentally beautiful.
0: What happened in Northern California to create... The begin- I mean, I'm talking about the very beginnings of... California, uh, the scene up there. Well,
1: I think that once you had, you know, bank, you know, cultural institutions and 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 a lot of wealth in San Francisco, once that was established and and you sort of had this prosperity in the region, it was an absolute engraved invitation for artists, not just from other parts of the United States, but from all around the world, to come out. I mean, artists were among the very first people. Um, to follow the gold rush, so this kind of idea of documenting the um, expansion and the, and the prospecting uh, in and around Southern California, or in around, the, I'm sorry, in and around the Bay Area, um, was intrinsic to how that whole cultural chapter was written. I mean, I, there's a very, very good book on Moybridge um, mm. that was um, that I think really covers that extremely well. That that San Francisco was more modern than New York in the 1890s because more people who had nothing to lose or who wanted to get away from the already sort of stultifying social vertical hierarchies of the East Coast came here. The black sheep of of those families were sent out to the West Coast where the damage that they did could be minimized. And so I think that's what gave San Francisco its, its... Incredibly bohemian and cosmopolitan feeling, even at a time when it was, you know, a fast-growing city like Chicago.
0: Right. Do you think that? Uh, I mean, there is a sort of idea that in, in Northern California there was more abstract, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the, the abstract artists came out of Northern California, while landscape artists came out of Southern California. Do you?
1: I think that's the, only true up to a point.
0: I mean, there's sort of a cliché about that, but what, so what, what's your opinion on that?
1: Well, because the patronage system was centered in San Francisco in like the Why 30s. do you think David
0: Park and all these people came out of Northern California rather than Southern California?
1: Well, because Berkeley, Berkeley. could hire Hans Hoffman to teach. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a recognition early on that importing major artistic talent from the East would give them a leg up that would kind of allow this kind of artistic scene to, to be nurtured. So I think that was, that was very consciously set into place, that if you wanted the most advanced art scene, you had to have the most advanced practitioners teaching younger artists or, or emerging artists. And, and I think that idea, which we now can attribute we, we can now locate as having come out of CalArts. In the 50s, I'm thinking of some of the earlier names of, of some of the schools. Shenard, for example, or um, what was... Um, oh, it's escaping me right now. But these early institutions in Southern California... Well, the even the art students the had... had uh, you know,
0: apparently, when I was doing a little bit of research, it was that I, I didn't realize it. Actually, I thought Shenard was the first art school, but apparently... The Art the, Students League actually had a branch out here. They did. Um, you know, it, before that.
1: They did, that's yeah. right. You know, so... And a couple of artists in the show actually studied at the Los Angeles Art Students League in the 20s, I think, in the 30s. <laughs> but it was not competitive. It was more training artists to be basic practitioners, to fill in the role of, of artist in, a, in, a, in a in an emerging... Capitalist society. It's kind of different when you've got this already formed city. Again, comparing it to San Francisco, which by the twenties and thirties is you know maintaining its own relationship with Paris and maintaining its own relationship, you know, with London. It doesn't. It doesn't have to depend on New York, and they have the kind of resources that can attract people uh, from other places. So I, I think of them. I think of of Southern California is you know in the twenties as being quite impoverished in, in many ways and undeveloped yes. even in the first decade after the, um, the aqueduct was built it still took a very long time for the movie industry and, and gradually other gradually the real estate industry to start to make a go of it to turn Los Angeles into a city with an identity um, and of course Disney was a very big
0: yes. player in that
1: field you know the, the promotion of arts education. Visual arts education in Southern California is directly related to the sort of explosive growth of film and animation in the 20s and 30s.
0: Yeah, how do you get your arms around this uh, subject uh, to put together this show? Well, how 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 do you... Even start with structuring
1: it. Well, you know, when you start at a museum <laughs> as, as the chief curator, you know, usually on your first day, somebody comes on with a great big computer printout of the collection, you know, and it weighs ten pounds, and they <laughs> drop it on your desk, and they say, "Here, you know, you're in charge of
0: this." Right, right.
1: And you know, the, um, the museum had had a chief curator for a few years before I arrived. Um, By the way,
0: how did it happen? How did you? What made you decide to come here to begin with? I
1: was recruited. Yeah, I was. I was good friends with the director, Um, and we'd worked together in New York for several years.
0: Yeah,
1: and stayed in touch. I was. I was a guest curator here in 2008 for a show with Peter Saul, so I got to know the staff and the facilities and some people on the board. And you know, I think it was kind of a natural when I was sending out feelers, saying I think I'm going to be looking for a job. Starting January 2012, I think it was very natural for them to come back to me and say, well, right. yeah. we've got a chief curator job open. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um tackling the collection was one of the first sort of responsibilities I had. And I, I, I had to go through the list and just sort of go, Okay, I know who this is. I know who that is. Wow, I can't believe we have that. What in God's <laughs> name can that be? You know, every possible reaction. Right. You know Because you, what you're doing is you're looking at a list. You know, and it's not even an illustrated list. It's just a list by artist of every object in the museum's collection. So I would say I've been back and forth over that list now. We have 3,000 objects. Yeah. Probably 30 or 40 times since going here looking for things. Looking stuff so sometimes I need to look at work that's you know that's made in the 1940s you know so then I can ask one of our staff to just run me a list of things from the 40s so I don't have to go through individually but to do this exhibition I did I had to go very carefully through the list and say oh we have an Ansel Adams oh look it's a it's a leaf from Alaska um, you know I didn't even need to Inspect that. I thought, well, if it's in its frame and it's not deteriorated, it's in the show. You know,
0: and then there were a number of number
1: of artists who I hadn't heard of before, so I had to go by date. So, on what the did title. you discover that you
0: didn't that you're excited about that you didn't
1: know before? Well, two artists. artists that I can mention: um, Robert Glenn Ketchum. Um, Robert Glenn Ketchum was uh, he was one of the earliest innovators in large scale color photographic printing. Hmm. So he invented was involved in developing these different processes um, printing techniques mm-hmm. in the, in the '70s that for the first time enabled artists to go beyond a print that was this big you know so I know now we large scale color photography is as yeah. commonplace as it gets right. but back in those days you had to do it in a dark room and you had to do it yourself and He was one of the pioneers of that technique, and he 's a very important um, environmental activist. He was actually a student of Ansel Adams. Mm. He started an experimental photographic um, society in L.A. in the 60s, late 60s, and gave most of the important photographers in town their first shows. Like uh, hope um, Well, John Tavola, for example, oh. had his first show with Robert Glenn Ketchum. He was also responsible for the Outerbridge, Paul Outerbridge's Work being rediscovered. Mm. He was the first person not in the family to find these prints that had been, that the wife thought she had thrown out, oh. um, but she didn't. Um, he was important for discovering James Vanderzee, the. Uh, East Coast photographer, African American photographer, and and so and, and then he had these amazing photographs, and I thought, wow, I've just stumbled into not just a really interesting artist, but a kind of a one man repository of so much history of photographic practice uh, in this area. And he's um, yeah, he still lives and works in Venice, and I'm going to try to get to know more of his work. And I'm also really interested in uh, Nicholas Briganti. He was one of the very first LA modernists, making abstractions in the 40s. We have two great examples in the exhibition, and I had never heard of this guy. I mean, Ketchum rang a bell because his work was, right. you know, written about in the 70s and 80s and, and kind of national magazines. But Briganti was a bit of a, um, a bit of an isolated case in that he wasn't part of a school. He wasn't part of a you know, any group. He basically lived in Sierra Madre and made um, realistic paintings and he made abstractions from nature. And it's the abstractions from nature that I think are just incredible.
0: The this subject, this, what is this called? This sort of a caption here. You, you talk about how, it says, discover how California artists have transformed the genre of landscape into abstraction and then back again. That's your sort of paragraph. Of mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Um,
1: by the first part of the second part. Both. I mean, <laughs> how,
0: how did uh, artists, uh, California artists, transform the genre of landscape into abstraction? Well, we have a
1: number of really strong examples of mid-century work that I think are kind of the jewels of our collection and that I think kind of exemplify the problem better than anyone else could. So our in Corn Ocean Park, our John L. Toon, also called Ocean Park. We have a few just amazingly Lee Mullikins from the 50s and into the 70s. We have many important works by Helen Lundberg from the 30s until the 70s. Um, pardon me. We had, um, who am I leaving out? Well, those are, those are actually the main examples that I can come up with, who are clearly modernist and are clearly working towards a form of abstraction, but each one very distinctly acknowledges the role of landscape in the formation of their work. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in pursuing that part of it. And if I couldn't find this connection to landscape, I wasn't going to include it in the work because there were so many um, examples that actually did fit into the idea, and then I just kept moving on into sort of the conceptual California photography, that so much of which was collected in the 70s and 80s um, by earlier curators, and thinking about how conceptual art placed another kind of a set of parameters on representing the landscape, and how so many of the artists who came out of that movement that we think of today, from Lewis Baltz. Um, it's to great those you have. Yeah, we have the whole set. Yeah. We have we have all of it. Yeah, you know, and it just happened this How certain... did
0: that happen? Do you know?
1: Well, what I understand is that there, um, the people who owned it, and it's not coming to me right now. Um, the people that owned it actually lost their house in the fire. The squires. Hmm. The the Laguna Beach fire of ninety six or something right, right. that d- destroyed all these homes, they had two things that they saved, and one oh, of them wow. was their their Lewis Baltz portfolios, and um, and then after it was stuff. done they Where gave they, the gave, museum, they right. gave the whole they gave the whole thing to us. Wow, I forgot what the other thing was that they saved that they wound up catching, but it was like. It was like a McGree. It was like, it was like yeah. they kept their McGree and they kept their Louis vaults, and then somehow yeah. Louis Baltz wound up with us. Wow. So it was a fantastic transformation. But I thought, you know, the impact that Louis Baltz had on American photography through the Industrial Park near Irvine, California series is really something I only came to understand when I moved here. I didn't get what the big deal about Louis Baltz was. I really didn't. And then I got here and then I learned about Irvine so and then I look at the photographs and I'm thinking, wow, this <laughs> really is amazing what he saw and what he managed to document before it was, you know, while, while he was still at the scene of the crime, while the evidence was still fresh, yeah. he, he documented it all. But then he impacted all these other artists. You know, so we come up to like an artist like Wally Beshti today. Mm who's making his work in you know the median areas of the California freeway system right right and the examples we have of his work in this show are of um, kind of missing like limbo areas in the freeway system that are part they're like they're in the median areas, but they're not tended because they're not in eyesight. There's the part that you, you see that's all well maintained. Now there are the other parts that are much bigger that are, that are not.
0: Yes. And
1: so he's gone into these other parts, which are now overgrown, and, and basically has tried to capture the feeling of, a, of an old growth landscape through these unmaintained areas mm-hmm. alongside the freeway.
0: Yeah. So it's a
1: kind of an, it's a kind of a conceptual trick that you, do, you look at them and you don't know what they are. You think, oh, that's beautiful, it's, it's nature, it's whatever. But then you think, oh, it's just, it's an accident. Right,
0: it's, right.
1: it's something that no one intended, and it's only there because of lack of maintenance, because yeah. no one yeah. has a reason to keep these plants at bay. So, so I, I mean, I think that, you know, that goes up into the, you know, those are from 2005. And photography is the way that the, exhibition maintains its focus on abstraction, but by way of conceptual practice. Yeah. So the most recent acquisition in the show is the 2013 photograph, photographic series by Penelope umbrico that has 1600 and something flicker photographs of other people's photographs of sunsets. And she's just gathered up a portion of these and kind of Dated it as of the day she, with the work entered into our collection, and made a version of the piece for our longest wall at the end of the pavilion. That is derived from the 13 million sunset photos that you could get from Flickr that day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think since October, that same file has now grown to 15 or 16 million. It's the fastest growing and the largest file on Flickr. So the whole piece is based on this notion of, of crowdsourcing, you know, that, yes. that, that millions of people feel compelled to upload their sunset photos to Flickr. For what? I mean, what what's going to happen to them? They're, they're just there. And Umbrico is saying, well, I want to make my work about, You know, I want, to, I want to make photography, but I don't want to use a camera. Why should I go running around making original photos when there's all these people out there exercising their creativity And sending their images out into limbo where nobody pays any attention. I mean, no one's going to go on Flickr and spend days just go, oh, that's a nice sunset. Oh, that's a nice sunset. Oh, that's a nice (laughs) sunset. But an artist like Umberco can step in between us and that limitless, infinite file and make a very particularly curated selection of 1,600 of them and present it to us as as a finite work. So that's as conventional an approach to landscape as you can get from the perspective of the, all those anonymous people uploading their right. photos to something that's really a very conceptually based practice based on how social media in, functions in contemporary society. So, so that's why I think that, that, that bringing the abstraction back
0: again to landscape right, I think, is an, I think. Is, it's
1: an invariable um, kind of closing of the circle.
0: Now. Yeah. I thought we just talked just for a few minutes about the way that you structured certain subject matters, like you have rooms on a certain subject, like color in one room. I mean, how did you go about doing that? What were you doing there?
1: Well, I wanted to avoid chronology. So I wanted to break down some of the kind of discord historically between different schools of the 20th century. And try to f- kind of force these conversations to happen, you know. So you have, you know, you have a de- we have our demon Corps in our Ocean Park next to a Frank Kuprian. And
0: what is you know, that room, what is line. that subject in that room? That that,
1: right? that room is all d- devoted to the twin principles of color and light. Okay. And how artists okay. have used landscape as sort of an excuse to indulge in just so this pure kind of ecstasy about color and light. I think is 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 and particularly that in
0: California where we have a certain kind of color and a certain
1: kind of light. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, every picture in that room is of Southern California, um, with one exception, which is that piece. It's actually um, from the Hamptons, in on the East Coast. So I, I felt like this is this is something that brings a lot of different artists together across the generations. The idea that you you come here and you're painting the landscape, but what are you really painting? Painting sunset, then chances are you're in it for the color and the light. You're not that concerned with meteorology you know, or the science of atmosphere. You're you're interested in those effects. So I thought Kuprian, who is a painter of effects and he's a painter of he's a virtuoso of Showing you how the sunlight dapples on the edge of the, you know, the waves, and it's just it's if you if it's quite a tour de force, but he's never ever compared to his almost contemporary Diebenkorn, you know, who's just a few miles up the coast in Santa Monica, making these abstractions from what the same <laughs> landscape that the <laughs> is painting, and and so I thought, well, if we put these together, these these are two artists who are not to be compared, you know. You, you, that's it, an unorthodox procedure to sort of link them. So I'm kind of forcing that conversation to say, well, do we really care in the second decade of the 21st century what a bunch of people in the 1950s were arguing about? I mean, they're, they're quarrels. You, you know, Where are they between the modernists and the, and the planet I Earth? Mean, uh, yes. I it, mean, was it was really open warfare. Because the standard it. time was the great Bible into learning how much resistance there was to modernism. Well, this museum, which started in '62, was very much conceived as an outpost of modernism. The, 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 co- the founders of the museum saw it as an outpost of LA. Okay. That you know that they wanted to create an institution where you wouldn't have to go to Los Angeles to see all the good shows. You could actually see some of the good exhibitions right in your backyard, and you know maybe even attract people from LA to come down. But it was very much uh, an, an outpost, a, a sort of a place where modern culture was promoted, and that, that's fitting for. An institution in the early '60s, I think, it's very forward-thinking, and that's how they how the, the ladies who started it were, were I think, inspired. Um, you know, Laguna Art Museum, as we mentioned before, is probably opened in the '20s, I believe, I and mean, it's very, very, the, the very very early '30s, and that museum. I mean, there were a lot of modern artists who lived in Laguna Beach, and a lot of conceptual artists in Laguna Beach, but the sort of firmament of the town's identity, culturally speaking, and its tourism, and its promotion as a touristic destination, has to do with the landscape and the impressionist school. So, yes, whenever the modernists showed up somewhere, anyone who was pursuing a more traditional or naturalistic type of art,
0: so wasn't asking, that their turf it wasn't like was like two separate scenes, they were actually in collision with each other, is what you're saying.
1: They were competing for the same patrons they were proceeding competing for the same galleries. They were competing for the same tenured positions at the all the local art schools that were cropping up so yeah, you had some really nasty battles going on. Um, You know, I don't know how much of it was public, but certainly I arrived just as specific standard time was in full flourish. And if you go through those histories, you know, like what 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 was Peter Volko's up against, you know, when he was starting? Yeah, think about it. Uh, You know, like, but that was everywhere. Everywhere he went, there was someone in the faculty that represented the old guard. And they were determined the, not to. The, yet, I
0: like, think even the, um, I mean, I came in the seventies, but mm-hmm. but the L.A. Times really didn't like my, you know, didn't like. No, they it. did not. You know, I mean, Henry this uh, was, uh, and uh, you know, they were just didn't like uh, modernism at all.
1: Right. So, but I guess what I'm saying is that their their quarrels were about turf. These were turf wars. You know, somebody was trying to protect the new protect what they held on to from the newcomers. And then the newcomers were trying to uproot the old fogies and, and, you know, you know, it's the new world. Get out of here.
0: That's <laughs> <Yes>, right, <laughs> like,
1: right, You're old and you're in the way. Yes, you know, so exactly we, right. we, we, and so, yes, there was a constant yeah. friction and a clash. And it was internalized by the people who were museum goers, who were art lovers, so that you had to pick sides. You know, you, ha- you, had, I mean, to, right. you had to pick put your loyalties in one camp or the other. And, you know, my point is just saying, like, we don't care about any of that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, from the point of history, it's all interesting. But those feuds, that tension between, you know, abstract and representation or modern and conservative, it's just, it's all, the conflict itself is obsolete.
0: There are certain artists I'm seeing that you have quite a lot you know, well-represented in the show. For example, Lynn Folks. Tell Mm -hmm. us about uh, Lynn Folks and why he's so... I mean, you have him in the entrance, you have him in several pieces in the show. What does he represent to you as far as the show is concerned?
1: Well, I think that Lynn Folks was one of the most inventive artists in the 60s and 70s in, 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 in L.A. And I think one of the sort of formal problems that keeps cropping up in the, in the work from, that we have <clears throat> landscapes from is how do you create a landscape which is at the same time a commentary on, um, on, photome- on the kind of processes of photomechanical reproduction and, and this kind of distribution of the image as a commodity you know so I think that, that Warhol's sort of challenge was already well absorbed and digested by artists of, of Lin-Folk's generation when he started out to make these landscapes. And so for me, like the, the painting in the lobby of the two identical landscapes side by side that look like postage stamps in the corner of an envelope, you know, to me, comments on the commodification of the landscape, you know, you, you, you just keep, you just keep making these multiple images and sending them out there in the world, and eventually the images cheapened. You know it no longer has the value of the original. And so what he's done is made these two originals side by side that look like they're carbon copies, you know one of the other, and made it in a way to have it simulate what a what a photomechanical reproduction would be. So it's as if the landscape is now twice removed from its original source in nature. And has gone through those first permutation of being transformed into a, a painted image, and then this kind of second permutation of being transformed into a printed image. And then what he does with it is, is try to bring the, the painting and the print printing back into this kind of fused image. So I, I, I think that one of um preoccupations uh, has to do with the endangered.
0: The
1: the destruction of the landscape through industrial development, and so the other part that I see in his work is is this rendering of of features of the landscape as as inherently precarious, you know that they're somehow endangered, even though they seem like they're pretty solid in their rock formations, you know, and then and then of course he's creating some impossible. He's taking known features of the landscape and rearranging them in some cases, to make features that don't exist. They couldn't exist. They're, they're sort of impossible. So that blurring of the boundary between what's really out there in the landscape and what's it, invented in the artist's studio is, I think, another way of commenting on this. on The um, the fact that our love of landscape doesn't always inspire us to go out there and help protect it.
0: Yes. Do you think there are other, are there other artists in the show that you think are addressing those very same issues, or...?
1: Well, yeah, I actually think that Terry Schoenhoven was addressing those issues um, in a very specific very way, very, very early, early on. on. Right. But I think his painting of the destruction of the Newport Harbor Art Museum through entropy, through through neglect and abandonment, and and kind of nature coming back and reclaiming its own is, um, I thought, was very um, foresighted of him to imagine this sort of. Scenario and to do it as a site specific painting for the museum was, I think, kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I do think there are a number of artists who who are now, you know, sounding the alarm about what we're doing to the landscape and how quickly it seems to be disappearing in front of us. So, Kim Abeley's, you know, with her Smog series, or Anthony Hernandez, kind of showing these oblique desolate and kind of urban landscapes that, you know, you just want to look away <laughs> because yeah. they're so kind of awful. He's amazing, isn't he? Oh, the Anthony Hernandez is an extraordinary artist.
0: Extraordinary. I think he's one of the most...
1: people under- don't know him so much. I, but, I am, but, I'm aware of that. I'm but kind of but, but it's,
0: it's, I think he's one of the most important unsung oh, I'm uh, LA artists.
1: I would agree with you. I, and I would link him to Alan sukula who Alan Zicula, recently passed exactly. away. Right. Who I think was a similar... Spirit.
0: Then the other thing I wanted to mention, Ruchet. It's
1: part. I think it's a part of Ruchet's work that has always been considered less. Yes. um, Valuable or less meaningful somehow.
0: So so let's talk about that particular series. Why did you include it?
1: Well, they really jumped out at me because of the idea that you know I, again I I I always think of you know Ruchet's work is kind of about these different screens that you're looking through these different. Layers that affect what you're seeing on the other side. And, you know, the suburban house, you know, that image of of the suburban house kind of like set against a nighttime sky, is, it's very idealized to me. It's very kind of dreamlike. And I think that he is not perceived as an artist with a lot of interest in sentiment.
0: Exactly. I mean, I see the
1: disappearing line of, you know, the Conestoga wagons kind of disappearing into the horizon as, you know, I, I find it strangely moving. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a, a, an interesting idea that, I mean, to me what it seems to mean is that despite all the Hollywoodization of this image of the pioneers you know crossing the country on their way here, mm-hmm. because I think it always needs to, we need to be reminded that they were coming here. Yeah. Um, you know, that these, that behind all that Cheapening of the image is still a saga that we all find quite gripping. I mean, I think, we're, I think none of us are unmoved by the memory, not that we remember it directly, but by this kind of collective inherited memory of that whole movement westward. And, and
0: including him, including himself. because he did it himself. He did it himself, he, he, yeah. Exactly. He did it himself.
1: Yeah, he was he was in he was Oki. you exactly, know, like exactly. coming to California. A yeah, with his friend. I a road more. trip
0: with his friend, Joe Good, and Yeah, they came here. Joe mm-hmm. Good, why... Let's, let's talk about that, that piece, mm-hmm. your
1: inclusion of that piece. Well, I really like how Joe Good is always interested in kind of showing the other side or a different angle from things. So this kind of like ripping into the landscape and, and, and tearing off the front surface that's painted, you know, it it simply makes another landscape. It's kind of like you get two... Instead of getting one landscape that's been ruined, you get two landscapes. You get the illusionistic one, and then you get the one that's revealed by pulling up or or ripping into this this sky. And I think that the violence in the work, this kind of inherent violence, is sort of the wild card uh, in his work, because you think... Wow, it's it is an act of destruction. It's kind of like self vandalism, but it's also a way of like looking past, you know, looking past the flat plane of the picture and being able to imagine, you know, the other reality on the other side.
0: Let's talk about these two pieces that you chose for the cover and why they juxtapose. I mean, actually three pieces, three pieces. <laughs> Let's talk about these. These, mm-hmm. these uh, cover uh, this piece. This piece. So
1: well, I wanted to show the Miller and the Briganti together because I thought that they were quite similar compositions. You know that they were act- there there's actually a, um, you know, kind of a strong echo visually so between I mean, the two of them. So it's it's as if this was the landscape and that was the abstraction. Okay. And I kind of meant to make that a, a yeah, connection so, between. So them. let's talk
0: about Barst Miller. Who mm-hmm. was he and then the other piece
1: well Bars Miller was a um, was the Gun Beach artist he actually was was a, um, a watercolorist and that was where his fame came from but he painted a lot of um, paintings of, um, of of people of, of life and you know this was painted at a time when um, when mining and oil production and discovery was becoming a huge Part of the kind of economics of of the state of California and so the role of the migrant, you know, sort of the this this was painted at the very end of the depression, so the movement of people across the landscape to try to seek work you know, often in these kind of extractive uh, industries is you know, it's a part of our national story that not as many artists wanted to depict as wanted to depict these kind of sublime landscape. So he, what he's done, I think, in the painting is is combine the two. You know, you get this image through the window of, you know, the guy who's hur- he's in a hurry. He's got to get to work. He's a little late. He didn't finish his breakfast. But where is he headed off to? Well, he's headed off to the hills. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you don't see the actual destination, but you see the hills, you know, in the foreground. And I think for Miller... It was this idea of the landscape's role in this more genre composition about a worker and 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 the pressures of industrial of an industrialized society that it's like it's kind of a perfect marriage between the two very very different art forms. If you'd had this in another part of the country, you wouldn't have been able to have quite as delicious and inviting a landscape you know kind of beckoning from the background. Am my
0: here?
1: Well, the Misrak, um, you know, I, I think what's fantastic about that image is the drama in it. You, you know, for all, I don't know much about, um, about uh, agriculture. So when I look at the image, what I'm struck with immediately is I can't come up with a plausible scenario for that fire, you know, is it controlled burning? Is it a brush fire? Did somebody start it? Is, is it? is it an accident? You know, it's really not clear. I mean, you have to assume that the artist did not get in there and set the thing on fire himself, so that he could have a you know have, have something to photograph. I mean, that's the one possibility that you almost have to exclude. So, what's kind of startling about the image is that it it represents. Clear and looming danger, a, a, a very present moment danger to the landscape. You look at it and you think, oh my God, it's going to spread, and everything you're looking at the photograph is going to be reduced to, you know, charcoal, to embers, you know, in a matter of minutes. And I think he's put his finger on that pulse of, of the fear we all have, based on this kind of precarious balancing act that we do with nature here in this part of the country. You know, that we're in a place where you know, the life we're living isn't sustainable. We know it. We just don't know
0: When or how.
1: We don't know when and in what way we're going to need to adapt to whatever drives that point home. You know, this this year it's the drought. Mm-hmm. You know, um, is it worsening? Do we know how bad it is? can we ever get back to a place where we're not in fear of water running out? You know, maybe this, maybe the drought will be the new normal. You know, and, and, and so this photograph, to me, comes from the perspective of someone who really knows the landscape, who feels very identified with it, and he's showing us an image in which um, this feeling of urgency is, is stirred up in us, and it's not because of what's actually going on in the photograph. It's because of what that symbolizes to us. You know, how just the image of a burning, you know, a couple of burning, one of those creosote bushes or palms, you know, we just, we want It's like do something. Fast, put this fire out. Right, right. And, and I think that's the way we feel about what's happening all around us today. Yes. So why isn't somebody doing something? Why, why can't we fix this?
0: You know, when you finished you know, curating it, is there something that you came, came away with that you, you, you wanted our audience to tell to know about that you didn't know maybe going into the show?
1: Well, I think that it's really easy to imagine that there's nothing new under the sun <laughs> when it comes to the landscape because you know, there can't be, I think, inherently a more seemingly predictable style or approach to making art than the landscape you know it's everybody understands landscape everybody recognizes it um, but what's interesting to me about this show is how dynamic this genre becomes once the boundaries are blurred a little bit once you allow the practice of the landscape to start seeping over into other ways of making art I think the field becomes very very exciting and What I've tried to do is make the familiar, in the sense that so much of this work is about here. It's about artists who lived lived or live here, making art about this place. I mean, that's 85% of the show. But that even people who've grown up here, I think, will find a great deal of what they encounter in the exhibition unfamiliar and surprising. And so that's the thing that I want to maybe emphasize the most is that, you know, people who think they know what a landscape is or what the limits of landscape's um, resonance or meaning can be, I think will be very surprised when they come to the exhibition to see how um, sort of startling and unexpected these different forays into the landscape can be. Um, and then to learn how it's we've got this more than 100-year continuity here in California of artists making new art, new artistic visions, using nature as their muse. I mean, there's no simpler way of saying it. Um, and I, 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 you know, I find this kind of, the, the idea of all these possible variations playing themselves out in one exhibition to be a testament to how lucky we are as a museum to have been the repository of such an incredible variety of work. Because without that collection, you know, we never would have been able to come up with 120 things yeah. mm. that we feel are worth sharing. And believe me, there's a lot of work that didn't make the cut, you know, where it could have been included, but it just wasn't good enough. You know, everything that I think is, everything in this exhibition, I think, is a really, really strong example.
0: Well, thank you so much. This is fabulous. I really appreciate Great. our conversation. Oh, you're welcome. And um, just to finish coming up after this, is there a... Sure that we can look forward to? That well, the next exhibition right is
1: called Sarkeesian and Sarkeesian, and that's um, that's I think a really I think it's going to be a tremendous exhibition. And it's original to us. It's a show that we've, we've developed ourselves. It um, kind of looks at the the problem of, of trompe-l'oeil in the work of a father and son who do very, very different work. But who both kind of tackled the same kind of problem of, of illusion, spatial illusion in their art.
0: Wonderful.
1: Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been great. Good. Thank you. Well, thank you.